I'll start with some prayer and then we'll get into the study. So Father, we come to you this morning and thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for this season and for this time of year. Lord, we pray that you would bring us some rain as, as things have started to dry out and um, we just bring that up to you and Lord, we pray for this community and for its well-being. We pray you would give us jobs and, and uh, bless people who, who live and work here and help us to be a prosperous community, God. Lord, we lift up uh, Sean and his family, uh, Sean and Autumn specifically, as they're traveling and pray that you would bring them home safe and, and bless their time down there. Lord, we pray for our missionaries that are out in often difficult places and difficult environments and and suffer these hardships, Lord, and we just pray for their continued provision and for your protection over them. Lord, we pray for our church here and for the ministries we have, for our men's and women's ministries, for our pastoral care, the children's ministry, the bridge ministry, our youth group, the preschool, Lord, our security team, the worship team, the kitchen, those who clean the church, all those, God, uh, areas, Lord, which you've given us to the privilege, God, of serving you and, and keeping this place running. And we thank you for all those who serve and pray, Lord, that uh, you would give us uh, a joy in our service and humility and uh, help us to, to just show our love for you through those things. Lord, we lift up our nation and our government and we pray for our president, God, that you would give him godly wisdom that you would protect him and guide him and his staff and that they would make good decisions for our country. And we pray for the church in this country. Help us, Lord, to continue to be true to your word, to be the saints, the light that you've called us to be. Lord, we pray this morning, Lord, we just want to know you more, to be known first and foremost, Lord, as people who know you and who are known by you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what is it to know something? We know lots of things. In the days of constant media access, we seem to know more than ever. We know about various crimes that occur all over the world. We know the intricacies of international geopolitics. We know the names and faces of famous people and celebrities and even often sordid details of their lives. We know of scientific discoveries and the results of a seemingly interminable stream of contradictory studies that tell us what we should eat, how much we should sleep or exercise, how we should raise our children, be happy in our marriages and relationships. We know the details of distant friends' lives and even strangers who we'll never meet, as we affirm each other's highly edited personal posts with likes or emojis or whatever means we can that requires the least possible effort or investment of our real selves. Lately, more and more, we're realizing, though, as a culture, that much of what we think we know is an illusion. It's a fabrication a calculated agenda to get us to think a certain way, to buy certain products, to vote a certain way, or to simply distract us from things that really matter. And when all is said and done, we have to admit we know very little other than what we personally experience and invest in every day. 
It's easy to get caught up in this flood of information. But what we really know and what's at the core of who we are is what we experience and invest in every single day ourselves. What is it to be known? We talked about what is it to know something, but what is it to be known? And just as we can know our friends and relatives and even strangers in superficial ways, whether through social media or by being just really private and secluded, we also choose to be known on that same level at times. We can present a certain image. We only disseminate the information we want others to see. We try to craft a certain image and be known as this kind of person or that kind of person but never really letting anyone truly know us. And I'm guilty of this myself at times. You know, I'm a social media user. I, I use Instagram. Pretty, That's really the only platform that I'm into. And it's a very short clips, very short pictures, and I like that platform. I don't you know, use some of the other ones. But you know, I'll have to admit, the things that I put on there you know, one picture, one little 10-second video might be the result of hours of video, of hours of mistakes, of problems, of things that I don't want people to see because, you know, they don't really want to see it either, right? They want to see. And so, and that's, that's kind of the world that we live in, where we're able to kind of craft this image to the world. And yet God has made us in such a way that we crave both to know and be known, to love and be loved. But sin corrupts. Our pride gets in the way. We get hurt or betrayed, and we want to hurt back, to protect. We demand attention or respect. We lie to impress. We manipulate or deceive or just ignore and back off. And as Jesus would put it, the last state of that man is worse than the first. That doesn't get us anywhere. So I wanted to read Matthew seven twenty one through 27. You guys are welcome to turn there if you would, and I'll read and you can follow along. And this is going to be kind of the primary text that we'll look at this morning. Again, that's Matthew 7, beginning in 21, going through 27. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Now this can be a scary portion of scripture. It almost seems to say that there are some people that will think they know God, that he knows them, that they've lived a life for God, but now they've gotten to the final judgment and they're up the creek. But that is not the case. 
And I want to explore this verse and some others to really get to know what it is to truly know our Lord and to be truly known by him. Because it's in this knowing that we find peace and joy and the love we all need and crave. And I think that's in the same in all of our relationships um, between one another as well. We can't truly love someone without knowing them. And we can't be truly loved unless we're vulnerable to allow ourselves to be known. So the first thing we should acknowledge in this passage, I think, is that it's essentially a summation of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 record Jesus' message to the crowds, and it's referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, and this is the conclusion of that sermon. The passage, the few verses right before this in chapter 7 are warnings about false teachers, Warnings of wolves in sheep's clothing, barren, diseased trees that are destined to be cut down and cast into the fire. So let's start there, that these people saying, Lord, Lord, are not children of God, the sheep of his pasture, fruitful followers, but should be associated with the wolves and those trees who may appear, uh, appear fruitful for a time, but are actually barren. Next, we have to see that saying, Lord, Lord, does not indicate a true submission of heart, but doing his will, following him, not flattering him, obeying him, and not using him. A little bit out of order from the first service. Ignore the man behind the curtain right now, so... But we can immediately infer that while they appeared to be doing the works of God, these apparent works were not the will of God at all. And this seems counterintuitive. Does God bless spiritual works that are done outside his will? Is there a way to hack God's spiritual power for your own gain? Any answers? No. These are not real works, but an illusion trying to produce figs from thistles or grapes from thorn bushes, as the Lord puts it earlier in this chapter. Simply, it's about what God has done, not what we've done. If these individuals were of God, they would not be defending themselves, but rather fall on their faces and like the saints we see in Revelation chapter 4, crying out, Worthy are you, O Lord and God. To receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. See, we're not worthy, he is worthy, and that is why he never knew them. Remember, Jesus conquered sin and death by dying, not by fighting. And we're told, like a lamb before his shearers was silent, he saved us by surrender. He loves us because he made us, not uh, for what we can do for him. And while we recognize the great and mighty work Jesus accomplished on the cross, at the time it appeared to be a shame, a defeat, and even a disgrace. He didn't stand before the coward Pontius Pilate recounting all his marvelous deeds, bragging about his miracles and his wonders. He was silent. And that's how his children should be. 
not defending ourselves, not bragging about the things we've done for God, but about what God has done for us. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus is essentially saying the very things they claim as their right to salvation are actually crimes, that they were breaking the law. What they thought would justify them are crimes which now condemn them. They're self-incriminating themselves by, what, by bragging about what they think they've done for God is actually their guilt. And I think, how deceived. But these few words, I never knew you, are to me some of the most sad, scary, and stark words in all of Scripture. I think, how can someone end up so far from the source of all life, the one who died for them, to where he says, I never knew you? And it's not, I used to know you. We used to hang out. We used to be friends. It's, I never knew you. See, the most dangerous person is the one who thinks they know something when they don't. Think of whatever job you do, and maybe there's a guy or a lady or somebody that you work with that thinks they know a lot, and they don't, and they're always messing up, and you're having to come back and clean up after them. Think about your airplane, your airline pilot, your surgeon, someone that's important, right? And they're, you want them not to think they know, but to know what they're doing. But he says, I never knew you because they never gave him their heart. Now, people lose people they care for all the time, people they've loved deeply and who have been a vital part of their lives for decades. Loss and its pain is a part of being human. That's something we've all experienced in this room, I'm sure, that we've all lost someone that was close to us, someone that we loved and that was influential in our lives. And the pain that is associated with that, we're all somewhat familiar with. Third Eye Blind, 90s band, some of you may or may not be familiar with. I was not a big fan. They had a couple good songs. I did rock out pretty hard in the 90s. Does anybody know this band, Third Eye Blind? Okay, yeah, pretty good sampling. But they have this song, How's It Gonna Be? And here's, the, here's some words from that song. I wonder how it's going to be when you don't know me. How's it going to be when you're sure I'm not there? How's it going to be when there's no one there to talk to? How's it going to be when you don't know me anymore? And, you know, I know it's just a rock song. Those are some profound words. That's a profound sentiment. And I love how they don't say when you don't love me anymore. Because I think that, that word could probably be substituted in that song. But it's not when you don't love me anymore, when you don't know me anymore. And they're equating knowing with that true loving intimacy. And I think that's so true, isn't it? I mean, I, I, who knows us more than those we love the most? Sometimes I feel so privileged to simply know my wife, to know her quirky habits, her likes and dislikes, and I'm sure a lot of you can relate to that, to just have that kind of access into someone's life that you love, to know them. But I think most of us, in speaking of loss, would have rather loved and lost than to have never loved at all, as the saying goes, right? Right? 
As much as it hurts to lose someone, the idea of never knowing them at all is unbearable. I asked my wife if she would prefer me to die suddenly or to have never even known me. That's a hard question, isn't it? And you think, at the time, like, I don't even know what I want the answer to this question to be, but I was just doing the study, and I was curious. So after she stopped crying, she, <laughs> she opted for my early demise than to have never known me, which made me feel good, I guess. I mean, so... <laughs> you know, think of that, to have never known or be known. Some of you may know what that feels like, maybe a parent that you never knew or a child, and the hurt that simply comes from not knowing. But then consider the pain of being outright rejected, that someone you love so dearly just walked away. And I'm sure many of us can relate to that feeling as well. See, because the Lord definitely knew who these people were. Don't mistake, I never knew you for he didn't know who they were. A lot of people know who I am that don't know me. Do you follow me? And they're lucky for that. No, I'm just kidding. He watched them be born and grow and learn to walk. He watched them make their choices and live their short lives apart from him. But now they stand defiant, not broken, not sorry. And now they stand before him, but still apparently don't care to know him. And Jesus Christ in his perfect righteousness is, in a sense, forced to say, I never knew you, depart from me. Because it's the truth. It's it's just the truth. And it's not something that he wills or desired or made happen, but they never gave him their heart. And so he never had a relationship with them. And now they face an eternity of not knowing Christ, not life, but what they lost. So imagine how the Lord must feel for the one who is a never known. And I coined this the last service. That is a term that I'm not going to copyright it. You guys can use it, but I want some credit. Never known? You're never known. If you're a never known. so. But just think how the Lord must feel for a never known, someone who never surrendered their heart, who never shared a moment or a memory or a blessing, but for selfish gain and glory, pretended to know him anyway. And how tragic is that? And I truly just don't understand that. But there are people out there that want to claim the name of God or the name of Christ for their own gain. And I think that's less and less so in our culture today, but there's still plenty of that that goes around. But while he says to those who reject him, I never knew you, to those of us who do know him, it's always, I've always known you. Not I never knew you, but rather, I will never leave you or forsake you. So looking at this, I think we can safely say the individuals in this passage are not just backslidden Christians, or even perhaps those of us who have doubted or struggled in our walk. Again, Jesus never knew these folks. There was never a relationship. So it would follow, if you have ever known Christ, this isn't you. Even so, we need to heed this and search ourselves and our motives and the things that drive us to make sure that we do know him 
and that we are known to him when the day comes and we meet him face to face. So the question, you know, begs how are we to be known by God? Well, the passage tells us, doesn't it? The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not the one who has a list of accomplishments. Not the one who's able to recount all their great deeds, quote, for the Lord. But the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. That's not quite an easy answer, is it, all the time? But we definitely can always be assured of what God's will is. Does anybody have any suggestions? (laughs) I do. How do we know what the will of God is? How do we do the will of God who is in heaven? Number one, know God's word from front to back, every word as much as you can. I mean, every Christian, in my opinion, should be a dutiful student of God's word and not have some sense of obligation, but for what God is trying to communicate is, is so clearly revealed in his word. And to not know certain pieces of it, but all of it. It's our very sustenance and our light and our life. And as our world moves further and further away from the truths that are in scripture, it's more and more important that we know God's word and we know it intricately. More than really anything else we know, if you're a carpenter, be a great carpenter. Know everything there is to know about carpentry, but I would encourage you to know more about God's Word. Not picking on carpenters. I don't know why that I even thought of that. The second thing is fellowship, particularly with believers. Guys, we need one another. God made us to be a body. We need one another in so many ways for advice, for counsel, for encouragement, for accountability. And thirdly, we need prayer. And prayer is very underrated. Sometimes prayer feels senseless. Sometimes it feels hopeless. Sometimes it even feels lazy or like a cop-out. Because prayer has to come from faith. And faith is one of the hardest things that we deal with as physical human beings to to believe and know that God hears and God will act on our prayers. And prayer of these three things is so powerful. Now, I would say all three of these things are all interconnected. Not one can function apart from the other. We need all of these things. We need God's word. We need fellowships. We need to be in prayer. And that's to know God and for God to know us. But beyond these is to make him known by our testimony and by our witness, by our service and the evidence of a new life. So that's how we know what the will of God is. And I'm fully convinced. So we've moved away as a culture so far from God's word. And uh, there are those who would have you think today that our country was never a Christian nation, that it was a violent, evil founding fathers that didn't know God, that weren't really Christians, and that's a lie. That's revisionist history. Abraham Lincoln said, in regard for this great book, I have this to say. It is the best gift God has given to man. All the good Savior gave to the world was communicated through this book. Woodrow Wilson, that's an incredible quote by Woodrow Wilson, one of our, the 28th president. 
The Bible is the one supreme source of revelation of the meaning of life, the nature of God, and spiritual nature and needs of men. It is the only guide of life which really leads the spirit in the way of peace and salvation. America was born a Christian nation. America was born to exemplify that devotion to the elements of righteousness which are derived from the revelations of Holy Scripture. Imagine hearing that today from anybody. (laughs) But that's the truth, guys. Hold fast to God's word, to know his will. I want to look at another verse. Kind of on that line about knowing God's word, um, one of my favorite portions of, of the Bible as a whole are those minor prophets. And they're just so short sometimes and concise and powerful. And if you really want to get a, there's just some great poetry in there, and they're so rich. And they're kind of one of the least studied sections of Scripture, those, those minor prophets. And uh, there's a verse here from Nahum 1.7. And if you want to turn there, you can. But the book of Nahum, it's a hard book. And chapter 1 of Nahum is a hard chapter concerned with God's vengeance and judgment on unbelieving nations and just it's one thing after another and it's very heavy and this little verse is kind of tucked away there and it's one that I've committed to memory and I I like to liken it to uh, an eddy in the river so you guys know I like to kind of play on the river and the river's really high right now and the flow is going but there's there might be a little rock jutting out here and the way the current will create a little whirlpool that you can escape the current and get into and just kind of hang out and catch your breath before you get back out into the madness. And that's kind of like what this verse is in this chapter. But it simply says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. So knowing God is often related to taking refuge in him, putting ourselves under his protection. The Lord, and a lot of times in the Psalms and, and some of the other, again, the, the prophets, is likened to a castle, a fortress, a tower, and even a warrior, our defender. And Jesus would refer to himself as the good shepherd who is willing to lay down his life for the sheep, a protector. And all of these are symbols and ideas of of refuge and protection. But what I've learned in my life, we only need these types of places in times of hardship, in times of difficulty. So when they built castles in the Middle Ages, it wasn't because everybody was happy, peace-loving, happy-go-lucky people, was it? (laughs) Because they were under attack that there were other groups of people that wanted to come and kill them and take everything they had. And so when the enemies would come, they'd everybody would all the peasants and everybody that lived out in the fields and the countryside, they would all run into the castle and shut the doors and try to wait out the enemy. And that's the idea that we get from from these verses. Remember last week how Curtis and the others shared how they came closer to God and closer to one another through the hardships they faced in Peru that it wasn't easy, that they had problems traveling and delays and things, and it, and it forced them to go to God. It forced them to rely on each other in ways that they wouldn't have if everything would have gone okay. And we all know life is like that. 
Life is like that in everything. For those of you that are athletes, you train, it hurts. It's not fun so that you can be better at what you do. Why do we think that life shouldn't be like that spiritually? Of course it is because God wants us to be strong in our faith. God wants us to be capable and talented as believers. And so he allows things at times to cause us to draw near to him so that we'll know him more, so that we'll rely on him more, and it's this continual growth in our relationship that's supposed to go on. I remember Curtis saying that they, they knew more of God's will through these things. They knew what he had for them through those things, and they gained a greater knowledge of God because of it. So how do you take refuge in God? I mean, that's, that's somewhat of an abstract concept, isn't it? I mean, think, oh, how to take refuge? What are you talking about? <laughs> There's no, God's not literally a castle, but there are some ways that if we think, yes, we, how we take refuge in God. Number one, by physically. Physically, our bodies physically taking refuge in God. We're doing that right now by all of us coming together and gathering in this place, taking ourselves out of our daily lives and coming to a place where we can be safe and study God and fellowship with one another. That's certainly that. And for me, I know that also a way to take refuge in God physically may just be by staying home, by not frequenting places of peril and temptation. And for me, maybe that's not going to the bar. Maybe that's not going to the Third Eye Blind concert that's coming back. I would, I mean, they're washed up, so. <laughs> but going to these places that I know could be a problem for me by not going there physically. This can also be virtual, guys. You can go a lot of places on your computer these days. And we need to be careful of that. Take refuge in God physically, mentally, by saturating our minds with God's word, not being cast into the sea of lies that is our media, and just by avoiding toxic content. And one of the things that I see a lot on my news feeds and things are these reports of various just horrible crimes that go on, crimes against children and women and things all over the world. You know, you don't have... what. For me, I'm just to speak for me, I don't have to click on that. I don't have to know about that. I don't want to know about that. And I've really been trying to make the conscious effort of being, having a, a tighter filter on some of that, just avoiding that, taking refuge in God by simply just not knowing certain things. Emotionally, we can take refuge in God emotionally by choosing to believe the best about others by not letting our assumptions and biases rule our feelings. We, take, we can take uh, refuge in God spiritually, obviously, through, par- uh, through prayer and moments alone, devoted specifically to hearing from and speaking to God. So there's a number of ways in every area of our life where we take refuge in God. Some of them we may not even think about, but that's what pleases God, and that's what draws us closer to him. Many of you know I volunteer with Fremont County Search and Rescue. And as part of my equipment, I'm required to have what is known as a 24-hour pack. And like it sounds, it's a backpack that is intended to supply all of my personal needs 
for a 24-hour period, which is about as long as we're going to be deployed at any one time. Any ideas what might be in that 24-hour pack? You can say it. What? Water's a good one. What else? Food, a little bit of food. You know, you don't need a lot of food in 24 hours. You need some. Maybe some extra clothes, fire, something to start a fire with, navigation equipment, some basic first aid, some lighting, and a basic shelter, something to shelter yourself. Now, since I'm kind of a weight weenie, as they call it, all of my stuff is ultralight, minimal type gear, which is wonderful until you have to use it. Right? I mean, it is the most lightweight stuff, minimal stuff I can possibly put in there because we don't usually have to use all that stuff. So I like a really light pack so I don't get worn out on, on the hikes and things. My shelter is literally just a small bivy bag, which is like a little personal bag, it's almost like a sleeping bag, and a tarp. It's the absolute minimum. And I'll have to say, I fear the day I may actually have to use it because there's no doubt I'll barely survive the night. <laughs> We've also practiced improvised shelters and lean-tos and the like, and none of them offer what we classify as a cozy night's sleep. And I'm sure some of you have seen like Bear Grylls or these other survival shows where they you know, make these improvised shelters out in the wilderness, and they're, they're awful. They're horrible to spend the night in. But um, in the Alps, the Swiss Alps, and even here in Colorado, as close as Leadville and Summit County, there's these alpine hut systems. Have you guys ever heard of those? Anybody familiar with these, these trail systems? And there's these huts that are placed along there in certain ways to, to provide you refuge. They're, sometimes they're free, sometimes they're by reservation, but they're always in extremely remote areas. They're off-grid type little cabins. They usually have a wood-burning stove, pretty comfortable bed, maybe even solar power or a compost toilet, toilet. And some are stocked with food and have a functional kitchen. But again, these types of cabins, particularly in Europe, are in remote, extreme areas that serve both as life-saving facilities as well as for recreational purposes. Some of these I've seen perched on the most inhospitable ridge on a cliff above tree line and in an area where you're sure if you're lost and you don't have this hut, you're in, you're in big trouble. Now picture someone lost at 12,000 feet. It's dark. The snow is starting to fall and they're exhausted. They've come over the ridge and they see a hut in the distance. But they inexplicably decide to tough it out. I mean, they have the training, the experience, the equipment. I mean, only pansies need a hut, right? I mean, a hut is a crutch for a real adventurer. So in their pride, they spend the night on an exposed ridge in some leaky ramshackle shelter made from twine and twigs. The wind is howling, the cold piercing to the very cold of their body, and all the time the hut is right there. The smell of a fire and glowing windows. And that's what we do when we choose the refuge of the world. Whether it's substances or entertainment or inappropriate relationships or education or money or physical ability, whatever it is that we take shelter in, whatever we choose as our refuge, will fail just as sure as that rickety shelter. And like Jesus says in Matthew 7, great will be its fall. The thing is, the real professional 
knows their limits. They know to use the hut. You know, Bear Grylls and all these guys that go out and they get the great ratings from sleeping in these horrible places, you know, these soaked bogs with spiders and snakes and, and, and this kind of thing, then that shoots their ratings up. But every single one of those guys in real life is going to choose the hut because they know. Because they know their limits, they know their weaknesses, and they know that that's a bad decision to not take refuge in that hut. And that's like us. When we admit our need, our limits, and we come to the Lord, he's got a log on the fire and a pot of coffee on the stove. We're never a burden or a bother, and that's how we get to know him. So finally, knowing and being known by the Lord is never finished. It's never done. Our relationship with God is always growing, and knowing God is not this factual type of knowledge. It's not a final type of knowledge. Not to be confused with knowing something in this world. A lot of us, we know something, and then we know it the rest of our lives, right? We know like math problems or something like that. We know something, and that's the end of it. But all knowledge in this world is passing away. Even the world itself will someday cease to exist, and any knowledge of it will be gone. Additionally, our faculties fail. Our memories fade. Even the things we may know now, we may not know in the future. 1 John chapter 4 has a very cool verse, and John is talking about the firsthand eyewitness testimony he has of Jesus Christ. And and he says, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And then later in that chapter, he'll say, and we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. And I think this gives us an idea of what this type of spiritual knowledge is supposed to look like. It's, not, it's more than just a factual knowledge. To know and to believe. And that, that's what's how it's supposed to work together. Our mind, our heart, and our soul working together to form that perfect eternal form of knowledge that is only accessible by faith. God is a God of life and growth and multiplication, and that should define our relationship with him. It's never done. Again, I think the same is true in every area of our life whether it's in our jobs or our marriages or whatever it is, we should always be willing to learn and grow. And, and even secularly, they'll, you know, studies will talk about the people that continue to learn as they get older and things like that, that the benefits that they have in their, in their overall happiness in life. But it's definitely true in our relationship with God. Hosea, another one of those minor prophets, he has this really cool verse in Hosea 6 3 it says let us know let us press on to know the Lord his going out is as sure as the dawn he will come to us as the showers as the spring rains that water the earth see it's a continual process a continual growth and just as we without a doubt know the sun will rise tomorrow morning so should our knowledge of God be a natural, intuitive type of knowledge that is accessible through faith. 
Why do we believe this about the sun? Why do we believe the sun is going to come up tomorrow morning? Because we've seen it every day for our whole life. The whole time we've been on the planet, the sun comes up every single day with precision and predictability. And that's the kind of knowledge we need to have of our Lord. One built on a lifetime of experience walking with the Lord and seeing him and talking to him every day. Knowing his people, being refined together and sharpening each other, seeing the work of God in each other's life until that day we meet him in person and the perfection of our redemption. The worship team would like to come up. We'll do one last song. It's a good feeling when someone knows who we are, when someone knows us. We go to an event or we go to church or we go to a place and someone recognizes us and remembers our name and knows who we are. And conversely, it's kind of awkward when we're not known, right? I've gone to a lot of you know, classes or events and things like that alone and no one knows you and it's kind of awkward. You don't really want to hang out. You kind of want to leave early and we've all been there. But God knows us. God knows who you are and wants to know you more and wants to bless your life. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul puts, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And that's the day we look forward to, not the day when he says, I never knew you, but the day he welcomes us and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. So Lord, we just thank you for this morning again. We thank you that you care for us. We thank you that you desire a relationship with us at all. And I pray, use us, teach us. Lord, use us in the lives of, of those who... Uh, are close to us, and even, you know, in whatever area of life you bring us into, God, let us be looking as we know you to make you known to others also. And we thank you for this day, in Jesus' name, amen.